Brothers, as we continue with um, Paul's sermon series, The Oaths of God. So Genesis 22, please turn with me there. Our text is verses 1 through 18. Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies." In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Dear Lord, we thank you again for this time that we have to worship you by learning and by receiving what you have for us this morning. God, we pray that you would speak to us through your servant Paul, that you would bless him and anoint him with passion for what you've laid on his heart but also clarity, Lord. And I pray that you would make clear your message to us, that we would receive it, hear it, and put it in our hearts. 
I pray, Lord, that our lives would be changed by what you teach us today. So use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you will turn with me to Genesis 22. We were here two weeks ago, you might recall. As you can see, this is the fifth time we've looked at uh, the covenant with Abraham, but that's because it's so crucial to the whole storyline of Scripture. So we had to spend some time here, and we'll also look uh, a little later at the way that that is duplicated with Isaac and Jacob, because that obviously is, uh, is important as well to our ongoing journey through Scripture. So, again, I want to put you in the picture. I want you to understand the, um, the rise of emotion, the difficulty between um, the emotion involved in putting a knife to your son on the command of God I mean, what's going on there with, you know, the mental distress of wondering what on earth is God doing? What kind of a God am I serving? We know from the ancient world that the sacrifice of um, one's child uh, was, I'm afraid, all too common. And it's still somewhat too common today. It still goes on. But that is because, you know, the, uh, the pagans and so on, the, the non-believers, they were, they were believing in false gods. Many of these false gods were demonic. And I have no doubt that they, um, to certain people at certain times, they, they actually represented themselves in that way through uh, false signs and wonders. For example, you think about the uh, Moses staff that was cast down and then the, the two conjurers, Janus and Jabras, who cast their staffs down before Pharaoh and all of them turned into snakes. Just that Moses' snake ate the other two snakes up. So there were demonic powers behind some, uh, some or most or maybe all of these false gods. And because of that, you would expect barbaric things, including the sacrifice of young people and children to have occurred. But we're here talking about God, the true God, the everlasting God, the one who is good, the one who cannot sin, the one who is pure, the one who is truth. What is he doing? Telling his servant to go and sacrifice his son. Look at the way that this is put. In verse 2, Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, 
whom you love. I mean, he's really putting it on there, isn't he? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac by name. Now, he had another son, of course, Ishmael. But the focus here on the only son has to do with the covenant that God made with Abraham and with the fact that Isaac, in Genesis 17, as we saw some weeks ago, was the chosen uh, seed. He was the son of the covenant. Ishmael was not. And that's made very clear in chapter 17. So what God is doing is he's not just focusing on Isaac as a son. He's focusing on Isaac as the son of the covenant that God has made. This covenant, I remind you, was initiated by God, not by Abraham, as if, you know, a human being can't initiate a covenant with God anyway. But God initiated this particular covenant with all of its promises, with all of its uh, clear stipulations. And Abraham had already tried to kind of uh, interpret it his own way, and Ishmael was the fruit of that. He tried to have a child in proxy through uh, Hagar because uh, his wife Sarah was barren. That's not what God said. That wasn't the instruction that he was given. That was not part of the promise in the covenant. The covenant was that you would have a son through Sarah, as crazy as that sounded, and that you call his name Isaac. So Isaac here is the son of that covenant and the son who represents all of those promises of descendants, of land, of blessing, of perpetuity. All of these things that God voluntarily entered into. This is the word of God to Abraham who has served him, not perfectly in every instance, but has served him, has believed him. And now what on earth is happening? This is a very crucial chapter in the book of Genesis, and it's a crucial chapter uh, for a number of reasons in Scripture because it is uh, perhaps the chapter where faith seems to collide with just common sense, the normal way of doing things. And the temptation is to try to to bring the two together again by means of, well, maybe spiritualizing what God said, uh, maybe doing some other kind of reinterpretation of God's meaning, or simply of uh, waiting around, hoping that God would change his mind. None of which Abraham did. What we don't find, for example, is that uh, when this word in verse 2 comes to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, not that he could have done that, but, but some people might have said, ah, well, since God doesn't really mean what he's saying there, because that would be against the character of God, 
then he must mean something else. Therefore, I'm going to reinterpret what God means. And uh, what I'll do is I'll just uh, pick out a, a, uh, a nice fat goat or something out of the flock, call it Isaac, take it up to Mount Moriah and kill it. I mean, that's what some people would do. That's, by the way, the way some people treat the Bible. God says one thing. They say, well, it doesn't really mean that. It means something else. Therefore, it means this. As I said before, and as I will say again, when people do that, even if they are good people, even if they are sincere, what they are doing is replacing what God says with something that they say and telling you to have faith in what they say, not with what God says. And if you've got faith in what man has reinterpreted the word of God to be, you don't have faith. Abraham knew that. And therefore, Abraham interpreted God literally. Verses 9 and 10 tell us, Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. I'd say he interpreted God literally, wouldn't you? Do you think that was easy to do? Do you think that he had all of the answers? He certainly had some of the answers. He had the main answer, actually, already in hand. And that was based on the character of God. But the interpretation was clear. Sometimes the word of God addresses us very clearly and we don't want to hear it. We don't like what it has to say to us. And so we kind of smooth it over a little bit. Or we reinterpret it. We are never in a good position with God when we do that. We are never acting in faith when we do that. This uh, chapter here, this Akeda, which is, is what it's been known as, tells us that God may put us into a situation where we might debate whether we're to trust God or not, or whether God can be trusted or not. We know what he says that we're to do. We just don't want to do it for whatever reason. And it's not going to be as extreme as this. But maybe it will be, well, I'm going to lose face. Maybe it will be, well, my reputation or my income is on the line. Maybe it's, oh, well, all of my plans 
the direction of my life that I've planned out. Or where I'm going to go to college, where I'm going to live, what I'm going to do with my life. You fill in the gap, but I think you know what I'm talking about. You know, throughout my life, I've noticed something in my Christian life. I've noticed that God presents people, me included, he presents people with an alternative. Take God's way or the easy way. Take God's way or the easy way. And it usually, that God's way is that you have to stand for the truth even when nobody else will stand for the truth. You have to do what you know is right, what your conscience is telling you you ought to do, even though everybody else is not doing it. Maybe people that you love and people that you respect and people um, that you look up to. But you take the hard way or the easy way. And I'm I'm afraid to say that many people take the easy way. And when they take the easy way, something happens to their conscience. Something happens to their conscience. They know that they should have done this, but they do something else instead. The only way to repair that is by repentance. Telling God, Lord, I, my knees buckled. I feared man rather than God, or I was weak. I repent, forgive me, I will do what you wanted me to do. Abraham was a literal interpreter of the word of God. And as a literal interpreter of the word of God, even though sometimes the word of God is not easy in what it tells us to do, it does help us to have a clear conscience before God. Let me put it in very clear and and basic terms. If uh, there's many things that I will have to answer to God for. I'm not looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ. There are many things in my life that... I've either forgotten about that I should have confessed or that I'm, you know, I'm not working on in the way that I should be working on. I confess that. I understand that. But when it comes to the word of God, when it comes to the Bible, one thing that my conscience is clear on, I do not spiritualize it. I do not say, I know it it says that, but it means something else. So when I get to some difficult chapters in the Bible, you know, when I get to Ezekiel and those last nine chapters in the Bible from chapter 40 to chapter 48, when it describes this huge temple which couldn't possibly fit on Mount Zion in Jerusalem right now, it's huge, I take it literally. I'm told to, I mean, I've got the dimensions right there. I'm not told to spiritualize the dimensions. There's a great deal of detail that's been given 
about the service of that temple and so on? I don't have any permission to change that and say, oh, it really is applying to the church. When I go to the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation tells me in chapter 7 that there are uh, 144,000 Israelites, and these are 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, 12,000 from another tribe, all readily and clearly identifiable Jewish tribes. I I don't have a, a, a word from God telling me Oh, this is really the church because all of the tribes, you know, they, they've been lost. When I am told in scripture that I am not to lean on my own understanding, but I am to acknowledge God in all things, I don't have permission from God and say, well, yeah, but God doesn't understand what I'm going through right now. Okay. What about when I'm I'm uh, told not to worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving to God, let my requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I don't have the right to say, yeah, that's a general thing, but what I'm going through doesn't fit in there, so I, you know, it doesn't make any sense for me to do that. It doesn't make any sense for me to cast all of my care on Jesus. All of it. Well, do you believe the Bible or don't you? Are you a literal interpreter of Scripture? Are you going to change it? What about the love of money is the root of all evil? But you love money. You can be wealthy, by the way, and not love money, I guess. But what if you're, uh, you love money a little bit too much? What about if that is a problem for you you have to have the best things you have to drive the 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 best car you have to live in the right house you have to be seen to be successful and so on well you have to realize you can't serve god and mammon god may give those things to you but who are you serving abraham was a literal interpreter One Bible teacher, David Cooper, put it this way, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. And folks, you can believe the Bible. It does use figure of speech, figures of speech. So do you, so do I, as we speak. But those figures of speech, those metaphors and so on that we use, they can be understood within the context of what we're saying and they have literal reference. You say, well, why are you putting in a lot of emphasis on this? You sound like a college lecturer and so on. Because I want you to take the God at his word, that's why. 
I really do. I want you to take God at his word. Let's move on. Let's see how faith, in the literal sense, reasoned. Verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I will go up yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Hold on, Abraham, have you not read verse 2? You're supposed to be sacrificing Isaac. He's not coming back. Or maybe he is. Or just maybe, even though he knows he has to sacrifice his son, because that is what God said and that is what God meant, Abraham's faith has kicked in and he knows Isaac is the child of the promise. Everything that God has sworn an oath to do is going to be through Isaac. Therefore, God's just going to have to raise Isaac up from the dead again. You see how literal interpretation works? You see how it drives reason? You either reason on the basis of, well, God can't really mean that. In which case, you reinterpret scripture before you do it. Or you just go ahead obeying what God actually says in his word and you allow your reason to say, well, that issue, that problem that I have, that's God's problem, actually. It's not my problem at all. He'll sort that one out. So when you're casting all of your cares on him, even those things that maybe you've been responsible for, which you have to confess to God, yes, I understand, when you are trusting God in seemingly impossible circumstances, that's what you're supposed to do. And then God will be God. And let him be God. Let him do what you can't figure out. Glorify God by trusting him. That's what Abraham did here. Verse uh, 8 says, When uh, Abraham said, My son, because Isaac wants to know where the lamb is. Verse 7. My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Abraham wasn't thinking this way. He wasn't lying. He wasn't lying. Okay, that's the first thing. He wasn't lying when he said to the two servants, oh yeah, we'll come back. When he knew he had to sacrifice his son. He wasn't uh, indulging in wishful thinking. Well, I hope something sorts itself out. He wasn't thinking even about a replacement for Isaac because God had been so particular about this. Now, a, a replacement shows up in verse 13, but Abraham didn't know that. Abraham 
reasoned, and we're told this in Hebrews 11:19, that he reasoned that God was able to raise Isaac up from the dead. That actually God had to raise him up from the dead because God had sworn an oath. So faith reasoned that way. Your, your reason has got to be um, subjugated to your faith in God, not the other way round. You don't reason to God. Okay? God is the biggest fact in the universe. He created it. You don't reason independently to God and then say, okay, I'll believe. You don't reason independently to the gospel and say, okay, that makes sense to me, so I will just, uh, yeah, I'll give, it my, I'll give it my mental permission to believe. Neither as a Christian do you read the word of God and say, okay, I will reason to the fact that um, I can trust God in most situations But in certain situations, you know, when they're wide open and there's clearly no, uh, there's no open road, no, no, uh, answer that's forthcoming, then I can't trust him then. No. You read what the Bible says, you believe it, and then you reason from that. You reason saying, yes, this is what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna trust God. And I know that God will take me through. How he's going to do that may not be revealed to you until it's happening. But you can trust God. And know that when you're trusting God in that way, in that difficult crisis, you are glorifying God and the devil hates it. He hates it. When you trust God like that. The devils are looking and they're applauding. Here's someone who trusts God. They see God, of course. Here's someone who doesn't see him, who's trusting him, who's glorifying him. Something that the human race being made in the image of God should be doing. So Abraham knows that the two of them are going to return. He thinks that he's going to have to kill his son and that God will raise him from the dead. That's what he's thinking. But God provides an animal, a replacement. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son. Repeat that from verse two. From me. Well, didn't God know this in, before anyway? 
I mean, God knows all things. So didn't God know that Abraham was going to obey him until the, you know, the, the very last um, you know, moment? Yes, he did. But there is a, there is an interplay, and I, I, I can't, you know, I have a lot of qualifications in theology and so on. I've studied theology for years and years and, you know, can name off to you theologians and books ad nauseum and their arguments, okay? But I still do not know what the mechanics are between, of the interplay between God and human beings, not the mechanics of it. I just know that God has made us responsible beings, responsible for our thoughts, responsible for our motives, responsible for our obedience or disobedience, responsible for our independence or dependence upon God. And God doesn't preempt that. God tells us what to do, and then he watches to see if we'll do it even when he knows what the outcome is going to be. He's not going to, uh, he's not going to intrude himself. So if, uh, if we know that we must be obedient in a certain situation and we don't call upon him for help, that's on us. Isn't it? God knows whether we will or not. But whether we do, from as far as we're concerned, that's on us. We're responsible. We can't say, well, God, you know, you predestined me not to pray today, or you predestined me not to read the Bible today, or you predestined me to disobey you today. That's nonsense. Okay? If we go quickly to Philippians chapter 2, I can show you uh, this. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12. You all there? Philippians 2.12. Let the rustling die down. Okay. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now that verse 13 is taken by some people as God willing for you. That's not what he's saying. How do I know that? Read the next verse. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Do you think God is making you complain and dispute against him? No. Well, then, obviously, God working in you, both to will and do of his own good pleasure, has to do with your response to him. God does not want you to complain and dispute 
And if you obey his word to work out your salvation, then God will work in you, do you see? To will and to do, to obey him. And in the same way in Genesis chapter 22, God helps us to, or helped Abraham to obey him because Abraham was obedient. There has to be this willingness, you see. And how did God help? Well, in this particular instance, he provided a lamb. Verse 13, Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son, which, of course, um, previews the work of Christ. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will provide. As it is to this day, this is Moses recording this, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. 400 years later, it was still, this saying was still known. This occurrence, this obedience of, of, uh, Abraham and the answer of God was known. If Abraham hadn't have taken God at his word, this would never have happened. This uh, mountain would never have been called that. And we wouldn't know that one of God's names is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide because he's that kind of a God. He's not like a pagan God who just wants a, a sacrifice to propitiate him because he's miffed or he's cruel. God is good. God tests our faith. He makes us responsible for our responses. But when we, we obey, God provides. Finally, God answers with an oath. And he'd already made this oath, but he's making it again. He's making it very clear here. Verse 16. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. That's kind of alluding to the land promise. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice Paul in Galatians 3 takes that verse and he applies it to Jesus Christ. The seed there is Jesus. You are blessed, therefore, because of Abraham's obedience. Because this is predicated on Abraham's obedience, isn't it? Because you have obeyed my voice, God says. Because you have taken God at his word and moved forward in faith based on that. You say, well, it doesn't make sense to me. These teachers are teaching that you spiritualize God's word. It doesn't seem to be reasonable. It doesn't, look, God has not made us the arbiters of reason. 
we tend to do lots of unreasonable things and think in very unreasonable ways sometimes. And even when we are using our reason, sometimes we use our reason to sin. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, God's gracious. So I know that I shouldn't do this because God's, but God's gracious. And so you just go and do it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is it just me? No. We move forward on faith, you see, based on what God says. It's really quite simple. A child understands that. Sometimes we don't want to understand it, so we choose to reason it away as if God didn't mean what he said. Paul says says it this way, this is the victory that overcomes the whole world, even our faith. Not reasoning so we can, you know, just, uh, as it were, say, oh yes, that that qualifies for being something I can believe in. No. God said it. You're a creature of God. You simply obey it. You simply believe it. And you leave everything else up to God. I would even say this. Even if you've got the interpretation wrong, even if uh, you're sincerely a little off track, God would rather you have that, do that, than reinterpret his words or disobey his words. I think his grace can bridge the gap between your misunderstanding and uh, the results that might come from that. God's grace will close that gap. What we are expected to do, and this is the, the key thing that I'm driving home here as I close, is to glorify God by trusting him, not glorify God by figuring out what he means, and then deciding whether you're going to trust him or not. Just trust him. Just have faith in what God says. Let's pray. So, gracious God, we pray that you would help us to trust you because we are weak and we fail and sometimes we misuse our reason Sometimes we uh, try to get ourselves off the hook or we try to lessen what you are saying and to believe something else which is more palatable for us. Help us not to do that. Lord, we can trust you in all things. And we'll have grace for that situation. You will work in us both to will and to do of your own good pleasure once we trust you and once we respond in obedience. Thank you, Lord, for being there with us, a God that doesn't leave us or forsake us and therefore enables us to live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.